True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 12, The Unsolved Case of the River Strangler. This case represented many firsts for me in my true crime South Africa journey. It was the first case where I'd been unable to find any news articles online regarding it. The case took place at a time in our history where we still read physical newspapers, so very little had been published online about it. This is a serial murder case, and frighteningly, it's an unsolved series. I'm telling you up front that no one has ever been apprehended for the murders we're about to discuss, because I want you to keep that in mind when I discuss the events. I want you to ask yourself if you heard anything or know anything. I want you to picture where you were when these events occurred, because at the end of this episode, I don't want you to just go away with a sense of sadness for the victims. I want you to go away and start a conversation about this case and have that conversation with every person that you can. Not only do the memories of the victims stay alive when we talk about them, but just maybe, somewhere, the right person will be listening. I first heard about this case while reading one of Mickey Pistorius's books. She included a brief synopsis on the case as she'd been called in to profile the offender, along with Elmarie Marburg. The idea that a serial killer, who had committed such vicious acts, was possibly still roaming South Africa, haunted me, as did the fact that two young girls, as well as two surviving victims, did not get the justice they deserved. I've been looking into this case on and off for a few months, and ended up speaking to about 15 different people regarding the case. Pistorius's book focuses on the hard facts, and as such, I still had no idea who the two victims were, and there was no way I was going to cover the case, if the victims were just going to be names on a piece of paper. I found a Facebook group for current and previous residents of Pinetown, where the case took place. There were a few posts where people discussed the events of that time, and so I started messaging people. I'd expected a backlash, perhaps some people who really didn't want to talk about such a devastating event, but that wasn't what I got. What I found was a whole lot of people who had lived with this horrible thing in the back of their mind for 25 years, and were either very happy to be able to talk about it, or just comfortable sharing their experiences. To clarify, in talking to these people, I wasn't looking for salacious details about the crimes themselves. I wanted to start seeing the victims through the eyes of these people who knew and loved them. I'll get into exactly what was discussed a bit later, but I felt it important to explain my process. There's a conversation I had while researching this case that will stay with me forever. 
it was with Michelle Forsyth, one of the victim's school friends. She had been so glad to hear that someone was looking into her friend's case, and she agreed to chat to me on the phone. I was not prepared for that conversation. As Michelle discussed her memories of her friend and the horrifying day she was killed, I could hear the raw emotion in her voice. Twenty-five years later, the loss of her friend in such a brutal way had left an indelible mark on her life. I've been fortunate enough to have never lost anyone very close to me to an act of violence, and this conversation made me realise how the trauma of this never really goes away. The world forgets and moves on, but the people who loved the victims never forget, ever. The actions of one individual scarred an entire community and sent ripples out into time that are bumping up against people two and a half decades later. Let's get into the case of the River Strangler. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. On the 9th of August 1994, a young woman was walking down Pastel Road in Pinetown, KwaZulu-Natal. As she passed an area of shrubbery, a man emerged. He grabbed her and dragged her into the bushes. She kicked and screamed as the man attempted to rape her, and pedestrians, hearing her screams for help, came to her assistance. Her attacker released her and disappeared into the bushes. The incident was reported to police. The woman described her attacker as a black male with dreadlocks in his hair. She said the clothes he wore were in poor condition and dirty, as though he may be living on the street. The woman also mentioned that he smelled strongly of body odour. There was very little evidence to track a possible perpetrator in this attempted rape case. The description was circulated, and local cops kept their eyes open for homeless people or men lurking in the bush areas around Pinetown, who matched the description. To our knowledge, no further incidents occurred in 1994. Local police would have likely put this down to an isolated incident, and as the new year dawned and 1995 crept up on Pinetown, the residents would wish it had been. The 12th of February 1995 was a lazy, humid Sunday in Pinetown. 13-year-old Kim Boddington lived with her mother in a block of flats. Her parents had recently divorced, and there are reports that Kim and her mom had just moved to Pinetown from Johannesburg. The first initial months after a divorce are never easy for children, and the combination of being in teen years makes it even more difficult. That Sunday afternoon, Kim and her mom had a disagreement, and Kim left the flat with a book to read, hoping to calm down in the shade of a tree 
next to the river which was behind their block of flats. When Kim had not returned by five o'clock that afternoon, her mother contacted her ex-husband, Kim's father. Lorraine Kevney went to Clough High in 1995, the same school that Kim attended. She had met Kim just six weeks before. She remembers Kim as being tall for their age group, with long, dark hair. Lorraine describes Kim as having a great sense of humour and being full of fun. There was also a gentleness about her, she says. They would sit together at break time, and she feels that they had a really nice friendship forming. On the Monday morning after Kim disappeared, a special announcement was made in assembly. The children were advised that Kim had not returned home the previous day, and if anyone had any information about her whereabouts, they should let a teacher know. Many assumed that Kim may have run away due to the disagreement she had with her mother. Her friends' houses were checked, and it soon became clear that Kim was not with any of them. Having been in the area for such a short period, Kim wouldn't have had access to very many resources. As the days ticked past, it became more unlikely that the young girl had left of her own accord. On the morning of the 15th of February 1995, Kim's father continued his search and started in the bush area behind the block of flats. In the river, floating just off the bank, he found the partially closed body of his 13-year-old daughter. Kim Boddington had been raped and strangled. Scene forensics would later determine that Kim had been sitting under the tree reading her book when she'd been approached from behind. The assailants had likely covered her mouth to stop her screaming, as none of the residents of the nearby flats had heard anything that day. Kim had fought back, but the assailants had torn off her shorts, raped her, and then strangled her. Her book, necklace, and high-tech shoes were missing. Kim's murder was announced to her schoolmates. Her body had been in the river for three days, and it was initially believed that she had been mutilated. Rumours of a mooty murder abounded, but it was discovered during the autopsy that the damage to her body had been caused by aquatic life. I have no doubt that the area where Kim was eventually found had been searched before. I believe that her body was probably submerged at the time, and that is why searchers didn't find her. Sadly, when her father searched the area, that was probably around the time that decomposition had started to fill her body with gases, and the bloating of the gases created a buoyancy in the body and caused it to float to the surface. The period of time that it takes for this process to occur within the body is predominantly dependent on the temperature of the water. In warmer water, a submerged body will rise to the surface within a day or two. In colder water, it may take several weeks. Pinetown is far from a small town, but from the people I spoke to, it's as close a knit community as you would see in any small town. 
Close-knit communities are supportive and form a safety net for families during times like this. But close-knit communities also have deeply ingrained grapevines and gossip mills. And when a tragedy like this strikes, the panic that ensues can cause broken telephone syndrome in the worst way. Most of the people I spoke to when I was researching this case had very similar memories of the facts. A few were very different, but that wasn't why I was speaking to them. These people were my connections to the victims in this case, and they all did an amazing job of helping me to understand who the victims were a little better. They also all recreated a sense of panic that existed during that time. Stories were flying. Parents were terrified for their children's safety. Things like this didn't happen to girls like Kim in Pinetown. But it had. And before the investigation could gain any ground, it happened again. On Friday, the 17th of March, 1995, at 10 past 7 in the morning, a young woman was walking to work in Pinetown. She noticed a man crossing over to her side of the road, and then he disappeared behind a wall. When she passed the wall, the man jumped out, grabbed her, and started to drag her down to the river. The woman had a stun gun on her and managed to send a shock into her assailant. This didn't deter him, though, and she had to drop the stun gun when he forced her face into the river, attempting to drown her. He then tried to rape her, but her screams for help were answered by a group of builders working on a nearby construction project, and her attacker fled and disappeared. The shaken woman was able to provide an excellent description of the man, as were the builders who became her rescuers. Her assailant was a black man, with dreads. He was unkempt, appearing to be a vagrant, and he had a strong smell of body odour about him. The attack was reported to Pinetown Murder and Robbery Satellite Unit. The case was soon linked to the attempted rape from 1994, and the modus operandi of the suspect lurking near the river and surprising his victims, attempting to drag them to the water, closely resembled what had happened to Kim Boddington. Pinetown appeared to have a serial offender on their hands. He could not be technically classified as a serial killer at that time, but within a month, that would all change. On Monday the 27th of March 1995, 14-year-old Kate Wiley set off from her school, Pinetown Girls High, to walk home with a group of friends, as she did every day. The girls would walk together, to a specific point and then split up and head in their different directions. Kate lived in Kierboom Street in Pinetown with her father, stepmother and brother. I traced her steps on Google Maps from the four-way stop where she would have split from her group of friends to the bridge overpass where the unthinkable happened. There are varying accounts about what happened next but I will give you the official account first and deal with the discrepancies thereafter. At 20 minutes past three in the afternoon, 
a female motorist passing an embankment on Cavisham Road, just after a bridge overpass, witnessed a young girl being pulled down the slope ground towards the bushy area at the bottom, through which the river ran. This was, of course, a time before cell phones were in everyone's possession. The female motorist was just a few hundred metres from her home, and she continued driving and allegedly called police from her home. Now this is where all the accounts get a bit jumbled, and it's difficult to say what is accurate and what is not. One account states that the female motorist drove to her house, called the police, and returned to the scene. But I also spoke to an ex-police officer, who didn't personally work the case, but he was on duty in Pinetown on the day in question. He told me that when Kate didn't return home, her stepmother, who was a family friend of his, contacted him and asked if he could help look for her, which he did. But if the female motorist had called the police around half past three, he probably would have put two and two together. What we do know for sure is that by the time Kate Wiley was found, she was sadly no longer alive. Kate was found in the area in which she was attacked. She had been raped and she had severe head injuries. Kate fought wildly against her attacker and police would later tell the public to look for a man with scratches on his face. Kate's friend Michelle recalled the day with startling clarity. She was at home after school when her brother walked in. She said that she could tell from the look on his face that something was very wrong. He told her that something had happened to Kate. Michelle and her brother went to the scene. By the time they arrived, Kate's body was covered, and Michelle remembers that only her shoes were visible, and that was how she knew it was definitely Kate. She recalled that her friend had worn a very specific pair of blue shoes to school. She'd been bullied because she looked different to the other students. My conversation with Michelle and another friend of Kate's completely changed the way I see people that are impacted by a crime like this. We always think of the victim's family, and certainly they are usually the most severely traumatised by a loss like this. But the impact goes much further than that. Kate was murdered almost 25 years ago, and her school friends still relive that day like it happened yesterday. Even people who only barely knew Kim and Kate admitted to me that the trauma of experiencing these deaths in their community changed the way they parent their own children two and a half decades later. Michelle's life was impacted even more deeply by Kate's passing due to a pact that she and her brother made on the day they witnessed her tiny body covered up at the scene of her murder. There were several reports that people had witnessed Kate being taken and not pulled over to help her. Michelle and her brother made a pact that day that if they ever saw anyone in trouble on the side of the road, they would not hesitate to help. Sadly, Michelle's brother would later lose his own life while keeping that promise. 
He pulled over to assist someone on the side of the road and was killed, Michelle says. She continues to keep the pact she made with her brother on that day. Michelle still lives in the same area. She lives in the same street as the church in which Kate would later be given a final farewell. She drives past the place where Kate died every day. She lives with the memory of her lost friend every single day of her life. And she also lives with the knowledge that there was never any justice for Kate, Kim or the two surviving victims. This is another point at which the story takes a few diversions. As I mentioned, I read about this case in Mickey Pistorius's book. She was brought in to profile the killer, along with fellow profiler Elmarie Marburg. The police worked this case hard. Pistorius and Marburg were still talking about the case in the media two years later. But the killer had seemingly disappeared like a ghost into the mist. We know that serial killers don't stop, and Pistorius states in her book that there are one of two options here. Either the killer moved to another area, or he was killed in faction fighting, which was rough in the KwaZulu-Natal area at that time. One of the other branches that the justice question takes came up when I was discussing this case with an ex-police officer, now private investigator. He mentioned that a suspect was arrested in Peter Maritzburg for similar killings. The PI says that he remembered the man being linked to the River Strangler murders through his modus operandi. The man was allegedly found not fit to stand trial and he was committed to a psychiatric facility. The PI remembered seeing this in a Peter Maritzburg newspaper in the early 2000s. I searched high and low, and I couldn't find a reference to that anywhere. It gets a bit frustrating researching these older cases, because we have so little access to online information. I'm pretty sure this article is out there, but whether a link was definitively established or not is unknown. Another noteworthy part of the lack of resolution in this case is that many of the people I spoke to who lived in Pinetown at the time, or even still live there, were under the impression that this killer was brought to justice. I tried to figure out where this rumour started, but only found a few more dead ends. One woman even said that she'd been told by a police officer that a suspect had been arrested. This rumour may have been linked to the Peter Maritzburg suspect, but many people believed that Kate and Kim's killer was arrested within months of the murders. When I told them that this was not the case, they were shocked. I've wondered whether this was a way of calming down the public. I can only imagine the huge outcry that erupted in Pinetown at the time. The police must have been under a huge amount of pressure to solve the case. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that anyone in the police started a false rumour on purpose. I don't think that's the case. But I do think that when the rumour started circulating, it may have been preferable to let sleeping dogs lie. We do know that the police were still investigating this case many years after Kim and Kate were killed. 
so it's not like they took this as an opportunity to stop investigating. They wanted this killer caught as much as the community did. As I've mentioned before, when I cover these cases, I prefer not to involve the families unless they've been public about the case and invited contact. I took the decision to leave the family members of these victims alone. A few people I spoke to were still in contact with the families, and they said they would mention the podcast to them. If any of Kate's or Kim's family members do come forward and want to chat about their girls, I'll gladly do so. I don't ever want to be the one to purposely invade anyone's privacy, especially people who have lost so much. An ex-cop told me that Kate's dad worked her case himself for many years, building up a pack of newspaper clippings and information. That's such a tragic image for me, a dad struggling to get justice for his little girl when the evidence just doesn't seem to be there. We've looked at a few cases now which occurred during the time that South Africa was undergoing its transition from apartheid regime to democracy. And it seems fair to say that people who committed murders during this time had a far stronger hand to play than the police did to a certain extent. We all know that this was a time of major turmoil in South Africa. People were suddenly free to move around and do as they pleased, and while that's a human right we should all have without a doubt, it also creates a very sudden opportunity for bad people to do bad things. We saw this in the Moses Satole case, with so many of his victims not being identified because of all the movement people were doing, and the fact that police stations may not have caught up with the fact that they were now a service and not a force anymore. What I would like to say is that while researching this case, I spoke to a lot of very committed police officers. When they heard what I was doing, they were all very willing to advise me on how I could find out where the case file is being held. Many of them did searches themselves, and were very diligent about coming back to me. Since Kim and Kate were murdered, there have been several changes in the structure of policing, both nationally and in Pinetown. The premises of the Pinetown police station moved at least once after the girls were murdered. The Serious and Violent Crimes Unit was formed, and cases of this nature were handed over to that unit, and then it was disbanded, and the cases went back to the local stations. So now, 24 years later, it becomes extremely difficult to figure out under whose jurisdiction the case now falls. On the positive side, many members of the police still remember this case. It certainly hasn't been forgotten. The good news is that information is shared between the various provincial arms of South Africa's investigative psychology unit. So if a modus operandi similar to the River Strangler were to be found elsewhere in the country, there's a very good chance it would be picked up on. One thing that I'd like to mention here is that due to South Africa having such a high occurrence of serial killers, we also have one of the most highly developed investigative psychology units in the world. In fact, it's not uncommon for profilers and forensic psychologists from other countries to come to South Africa for training. 
An unsolved serial killer case is highly unusual in South Africa, and international statistics show that from the point that a series of murders is identified, police forces in other countries can take from two months to a year to apprehend a suspect, while in South Africa, that period is closer to six weeks. I know that's an odd thing to be proud of, but since we can't really control how many serial killers we have short of a total overhaul of our country's socio-economic circumstances, I think that we can be proud and relieved that we do have such an advanced grasp on the science of investigative psychology. We know that the investigative psychology units classed this case as a serial murder, and I can certainly see why they would have done that. I believe that this was predominantly based on the modus operandi of the killer. A few members of the public that I spoke to expressed frustration that it had been classed as a serial offence, because the cause of death in Kim's case was strangling, and in Kate's case, she was essentially bludgeoned to death. Serial killers do change their method of killing, though. For this killer, the major fantasy was most likely about the rape, and the murder was a way to silence and further control the victim. His fantasy developed, and he may have realised that it takes a very long time to strangle someone. His acts were very public, and in Kate's case, he may have suspected that passing motorists had seen him, so he chose a quicker method of killing. If I managed to find the station that held this case file, my question would have been, is there DNA? As we know, most cold cases are solved on the basis of DNA. Just recently, we have seen a 12-year-old cold case in Stellenbosch solved through a DNA match. We were definitely collecting DNA from crime scenes in 1995, and with there being sexual assaults in Kim and Kate's case, I'm sure that there must have been some DNA left behind. But you need a sample to compare that DNA to, and therein lies the challenge. Kim Boddington's high school friend Lorraine remembers that Kim's birthday stayed on her homeroom teacher's birthday wall in her classroom for the rest of the year. Lorraine has never forgotten that date, and she thinks about her lost friend every year on her birthday. Kate Wiley was described as a quiet girl, and unfortunately, I was told by many people that she was bullied at school. This fact seemed to deepen the sadness that her friends felt about her passing. Many of the people I spoke to said that it seemed so unfair that a young girl who had struggled so much to fit in had then met with such a violent and horrendous end. One lady I spoke to was a few grades ahead of Kate in school, and they both volunteered in the school library. She spoke about how Kate seemed to look up to her and admire her, and she'd found this strange at the time because there was a significant age difference. But she was always kind to Kate and happy to chat with her while they were in the library together. She hadn't been aware that Kate was a victim of bullying, 
so when I mentioned this fact to her, it all fell into place. She then realised that Kate was gravitating towards her because she showed her kindness. I felt it important to mention to her that she was probably one of the few people at school who had shown Kate any kindness in her last days, and that she most likely made a big impact on the young girl without even knowing it. You never know what someone is going through, and you never know how much a kind word means to someone. You also never know what that person's future holds, and your kindness may just be some of the loss they experience. I spoke to another friend of Kate's, Sandy Jordan, who now lives in Australia. She knew Kate from the age of nine. Sandy is still extremely traumatised. She told me that she feels guilty because she had to part ways with Kate when they were walking home that day, and she believes that if she hadn't done that, Kate may still be alive. I mentioned to Sandy that she's experiencing survivor's guilt. She made mention of many other circumstances that, if they'd just been slightly different, would have changed the entire outcome of that day. This is so common in cases like this. But as I told Sandy, the fact remains that there's only one person responsible for Kate's death, and that's the man that took her life. We all make decisions on a daily basis, and we have no idea how those decisions may impact someone else's future. But the guilt for a situation like this will never rest with anyone except the perpetrator. Sandy remembers Kate as being kind and gentle, and always positive no matter what challenges life threw at her. Sandy doesn't believe that Kate's murder was linked to Kim's. She believes that there was more than one person involved in Kate's murder. What stood out for me so vividly in my conversation with Sandy was her deep grief, and how the loss of her school friend 24 years ago has impacted so many aspects of her life. I recently listened to an, an audiobook called No Stone Unturned, which is about the formation of the Necrosearch Group in America, a group of people from all different scientific, forensic and law enforcement backgrounds that formed in the 1970s to help uncover clandestine graves. They use a phrase to explain why they look for the graves of people who have been murdered, sometimes decades before. The phrase is, There is no statute of limitations on grief. I think that phrase perfectly describes this case. No matter how much time has passed since the murders of Kim Boddington and Kate Wiley, the grief and trauma for their community, friends and family remains as vivid and painful as the day they were taken. This episode took a long time to come to fruition, and in the end I had to decide whether to wait to see if I could find more evidence about the case, or proceed with what I had. The episode has been quite a bit different from what you're used to from True Crime South Africa, as there's so little information available about the crimes themselves. But I think that in itself makes a statement. This case struck me because it seemed a perfect example 
of the kind of case where the victims have lost their voice over time. In speaking to those who knew and loved them, I feel that I at least have a better idea of who they were, and now, in turn, I hope that you do too. The hope for resolution in this case is always present, but failing that, at the very least, far more people are now aware that in 1995, two young girls lost their lives to a vicious predator. They had their entire futures ahead of them. They were human beings, and they did not deserve what happened to them. Their names were Kim Boddington and Kate Wiley and they may have lived for a very short time, but their impact has been far-reaching and abundant. I would like to thank the following people for their assistance in researching this case and for sharing their difficult and traumatic memories with me so that we can remember Kate and Kim and hopefully bring awareness to the fact that they never got justice for what happened to them. Debbie Harrier-Jones Debbie O'Brien, Sean O'Brien, Justin Mazal, Eva Wilson, Michelle Forsyth, Jodie Lee Davy Craig, Lorraine Cavani, Angela Hawkins, Nola van der Vorp, Sandy Jordan, and Dawn Morton Kingsart. Thank you for listening to episode 12. The Unsolved Case of the River Strangler. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow us or subscribe on the platform you're using to listen to us. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. As always, I appreciate your support for the podcast as well as the victims whose cases we cover. I'll chat to you soon.